Hey everybody, I'm Bobby Salveson. And I'm Michael Monaco, and together we are the Hazmat Guys, connecting the Hazmat community near and far with knowledge, insight, and real-world examples in an effort to make your job just a little bit easier and safer. Now, let's take a minute to hear from today's sponsors. Hey, Mike, pop quiz. What is the standard go-to method for emergency decon? Uh, That's pretty easy. Wet decon, right? Well, you know, you're not the only one that may be thinking that, but it's actually dry decon. No, 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 no. How many times have I heard dilution is the solution to pollution? (laughs) Actually, too many. And that's the issue. Makes sense if you think about it. Without the use of water, we don't need to spend extra time setting up traditional showers or pools. And there's no wastewater afterwards. And you're not going to freeze anybody to death if it's below 60 degrees. Check out firstlinetech.com slash dry decon. First Line Technology has a whole webpage dedicated to the methodology and links to plenty of dry decon resources. See for yourself why dry decon with FiberTech should be your go-to immediate decon solution. Let's get to the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Hazmat Guys, episode 397, if Mm. I remember my numbers correctly indeed indeed joe rogan we're right behind you yeah <laughs> he's got us by a little bit that's so uh we got some some uh, some things happened last week oh, some yeah. fun things happened last week yes uh we were in baltimore and we did the hazmat scavenger hunt and we, we gave out a lot of great prizes we gave out 12 12 specialist subscriptions, six technician subscriptions, a half inch propane flare, and a year to peak software. That's the end. The whole place had an absolute blast. Yeah. I kept having students. And four four, um, uh, scholarships. We gave away four scholarships. Four. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Who, uh, all right, so well, besides the who and the what, congratulations, guys, to those that, that did it. We are so excited yes. to have to have been able to like bombard the conference with our scavenger hunt. Uh, it was totally, it, it is a lot of fun disrupting the, the, the apple cart, and we will be doing it next year, but it's going to be bigger, better, and better. Yes, and so we're going to uh, adjust fire for Massachusetts, the final uh, conference of the year, uh, which is going to be at Gillette Stadium. That is a legit happening thing. So we're announcing it. It's official. We're announcing it's official. It's it's out. All right. Very cool. And the logo is pretty badass. Yeah, well, they totally they're revamping. It's no longer, though. You can't say it's the Massachusetts conference. It's now the. New England. New England conference. So It's the New England regional. They are turning it into a regional conference. So if you are listening to us from Maine, New Hampshire, Virginia, New York, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, I assume we'll be there. International, even intergalactic. Right. For my friends up there in uh, in Canada, I know I had conversations with you guys in Baltimore uh, that are in uh, Quebec, Toronto, and uh, Halifax. Come this on is, down. This is the, the the place to come. It's a great conference. Uh, it's run it's run really spectacularly, uh, where you don't you you have the option to take 
classes that you know the classes tend to repeat themselves so if you mm-hmm. miss it once you can take it another time it, it's it's a it's a great conference and yeah and so i heard football times. players will be there you, <laughs> yeah did, actually there will be there will be right? cheerleaders and some uh based uh not baseball uh football people things there so so good times all right well um when you when you just when you think we're all batteried out no and nope. you go to Baltimore and you're like, oh my God, it's like it's like the vegetable aisle where there's so much selection of battery classes at this one. We have a good one. We do have a good one. And this is uh this is one, you know, I'm a little embarrassed because we should have done this a long ass time ago. And yeah. I think we didn't because we just kind of I, I honestly don't know what happened. Today we're going to be talking about Surprise Arizona. Uh, yes. And there was stuff, I guess I just listened to other people talk and I never actually read the document. And I've been given bad information about what happened. Ooh. I, and I've been giving bad information on what happened, right? For example, like I was always told that they opened the door and the moment they opened the door, the explosion happened. Mm. That is not what happened at all. There was oh. there was a long delay between the opening of the door and the explosion. It was like 33 seconds, I think it says. Yeah, it was enough for the actual like compartment to start to empty out of the visible vapor. So it, there was a significant amount of time. You know, we we, uh, we talk about it or we hear about it, and we almost like think like a backdraft situation where the air went rushing in and there was a smoke explosion, and that wasn't it at all. So uh, I think it's good to, to kind of go through everything. Uh, we're going to be kind of reading and commenting off of the UL Labs, the Uni- uh, Underwriter Laboratory. They yeah. put out an after-action report uh, back in 2020. So uh, this is up there. We're kind of going to be reading from it, talking about it, uh, some little things here and there that that I definitely didn't know about. And, uh, yeah, we'll kind of go from there. Um, we're going to probably be doing this. So we're going to read some and interpret some. Uh, if you're watching, um, obviously, you're going to be able to see and read it, too. But if you want to read the whole thing, we're just going to put it into um, the on the web page um, underneath where all the stuff is. So I will put this document that we're referring to in the website. So uh, check it out. So, so why don't you start so, us off? Yeah. So um, the executive summary, which is a nice little snippet, uh, and I'll read whatever, a paragraph or two. Uh, on April 19th, 2019, one male career fire captain, one male career fire engineer, and two male career fire fighters received serious injuries as a result of cascading thermal runaway with a 2.16 gigawatt. No, that's not true. <laughs> I'm totally making it up. Uh, 2.16 milli megawatt hour lithium ion battery ESS that led to a deflagration event. This is... Good. Right, good. All right. So the smoke detector in the ESS signaled an alarm condition at approximately 1655 hours. Now, if you're at home, grab a pen, pen and paper and keep track of these times because yeah. the, the times actually kind of also boggled my mind. At 1655 hours, there was a total discharge of and, and a, a total flooding of the ESS system with a clean agent suppression called Novec 1230. And I want to talk a little bit about Novec 1230 when okay. we're done with this paragraph. Yep. The 
engine firefighters were members of the hazmat team that arrived on scene at approximately 1828. So 6.55 is the initial alarm event. 18, about an hour and a half. Right, about an hour and a half. 1828 uh, is the, the time frame that, 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 the, um, that the hazmat team arrived on scene. Uh, when they got there, they noted a low-lying white cloud of vapor uh, vapors issuing from the structure and also some nearby components, which makes sense. All these systems are kind of connected with conduits. Yep. Uh, the team defined the hot zone. They made several entries, including uh, gas monitoring, conducting a 360 size up, and they're using the thermal imaging cameras. They detected dangerously high elevated levels of hydrogen cyanide and carbon monoxide during each entry tip. Now, I'm going to tell you they were they were reading those carbon monoxide and, and uh, hydrogen cyanide levels at the gate. Not mm. at the the container, which is oh. which I think is kind of cool. And I want to point out one more thing. They said several entries into the hot zone. Um, the definition of hot zone is needed because they did not. That does not mean they entered the container. What right. I, what they're saying is, and this is later on. We'll go through that as well. Is that they established a three hundred foot perimeter, and I think their definition of I went in that perimeter is making an entry into the hot zone. Right. That's so how the, I'm interpreting this. Yep, the initial operations did a 300-foot uh, radius isolation zone. When the hazmat team got on scene after doing their metering, they established the hot zone as the gated area. And yes. and that was because of the, the reading levels of hydrogen cyanide and carbon monoxide that they, that they received. And uh, I know it's mentioned later on, and I want to say it was like five parts per million of hydrogen cyanide for the hot zone. That's where they ended up crossing lines. But they got levels upwards of like 60 to 90 parts per million of hydrogen cyanide, which is, is, is pretty significant. Uh, so the continue, team continued to monitor the SS, and they stopped and they, and they stopped. It stopped flowing out at about 1950. The hazmat leadership developed an incident plan with input from the group's senior officers and information from about the EM ESS was provided by representative from the company that owned, designed, and maintained the ESS. The hazmat team made a final entry into the hot zone and found HCN and CO concentration in the vicinity of the ESS were below the acceptable thresholds. I need definition on what's acceptable thresholds. Right. So the accept the acceptable we'll yeah the acceptable thresholds that they use are the um, the PEL and PES. the I and the IDLH. Fine. That's I'm cool with that. Okay. Um, in following with the ancient action plan, the team opened the door to the ESS at approximately eight o'clock. Okay, so it's eight oh one. The flagration event was observed by the firefighters outside the hot zone at approximately twenty oh four. Three minutes. Yeah, three minutes. Uh, this is the part that I was like, wait, what? So what does that mean happened? Like, I'm still so confused as to what actually like four minutes into it or three minutes into opening the door. I just thought it was an, an oxygen, you know, an oxygen, like an oxygen star fire. Oxygen went rushing in and, and whoosh. That wasn't it at all. So, all right, so let me finish these last two sentences and then we'll jump over to the, the part the meat of it. Uh, all hazmat team members received serious injuries in the deflagration and were quickly transported to nearby hospitals. Note the lithium ion battery ESS involved in this incident was commissioned prior to the release of a first draft of the current consensus standard of the ESS installation, which is NFPA 855, which is the design of ESS complied with the pertinent codes and standards active at the time of its commissioning. 
Yeah, and that turns out to be major like contributing factors. I, I don't. I'd really like to do the contributing factors and the lessons learned at the end, uh, and kind of walk through the story in the beginning. But keep, remember that when you're listening yeah. to this next time. So uh, now we're going to kind of go into. Uh, more of the actual what the fire department did when they were actually on scene. Um, because I think that's that's really like as us as firefighters, we kind of want to know like, well, what exactly did they do? What was their thought process? What were they what were they learning from? What were they they basing everything off of? So uh, at 1741 hours. All right. So now the initial alarm went off at, at what time? Oh, 1628. No, 1655. 1655. Okay. If memory serves. So there was an initial at 1655. Yes. Just to hit the, I'm going to go up a little and hit the timeline before that. So at 1654 and 30 seconds, uh, the minimum battery cell voltage in modular two of rack 15 began to rapidly decrease. So the battery management system noticed that there was a voltage change and it dropped down. Where are you now? uh, I am 4.5 timeline. Yeah, uh, page what, what 17. Time? What time? Uh 165430. Oh, 16. I'm sorry. I'm looking at 18. So, there we at, go. okay. At 165544, remember this is all before, right? The fire department didn't get called until almost like an hour later. Mm-hmm. So 165544, uh, 165-44, the air temperature measurements within the inverter at the top of rack 15 and 17 begin to rapidly increase from 104 degrees to 125 degrees, 121 degrees rather. At 165-20, so less than a minute after that module or Uh, saw the voltage drop, the smoke detector system registered an alarm condition causing all of the DC, AC, and AC inverters to shut off the breakers. At 16.55 and 38 seconds, the air temperature measurements on rack 15 and 17, they peaked at 121.6 degrees Fahrenheit. At 6.55.50 seconds, which is now we're talking about a minute and a half uh, or a minute and 30 seconds after the voltage was dropped, the suppression system was discharged. Now, this is the Novec. This is the clean agent. If you don't know how a clean agent works, a a clean agent works off of – the heat of vaporization. So they take a, a compressed liquid uh, that has a, a boiling point around room temperature. They discharge it into the room and the heat that gets pulled f- to allow it to go from a liquid to a gas gets pulled from the fire. Since the heat is part of the fire tetrahedron, that's how it ends up suppressing the fire. It suppresses flame. This is a really important point, right? The, the the clean agent and the Novec is going to suppress flame. It is not suppressing thermal runaway, just as a keep that in mind. Mm. Hey, listeners, the Hazmat guys have some great news for you and your organization. We are really stepping up our brand of in-person training in addition to the great content you get on demand. Now, we know what you're thinking, but this is already incredibly great stuff, and how could it possibly get better? All I can say is, wait until we're in front of you. When we gather the best of the best from across this planet, and even beyond, and assemble an instructional cadre that is seriously second to none. And now we have a ton of ways to help you, your team, or your organization get to a level that makes everybody proud. From subscriptions, 
on-demand hybrid methods to full in-person goodness. You can contact me, Bob, at thehazmatguys.com to schedule a call and find a solution that works for you. And every participant of an in-person class gets a free one-year premium subscription, which sounds pretty good. Hmm. So contact me at bob at and get some more information. At 1741-54, uh, the dispatch receives a call reporting smoke in the area. So literally we are almost an hour into this, right? So the, the whole system goes off. Battery monitoring system, this thing is remotely monitored. Fire department is only called because somebody from the outside says, hey, there's smoke coming from this thing. Right. All right. At 1744, all communication with the ESS was lost. That dispatch system that not the not the 911 dispatchers, but the uh, the e, uh, battery management system right. was done. Uh, 1748. We have our first units arriving on scene. So that timeline kind of brings us up to the narrative of the, the function of the firefighters. So at 1741 hours on April uh, 19th, 2009, surprise medical slash fire department engine 304 was dispatched to a report of smoke in the area. The fire captain of engine 304 acknowledged it was a brush fire season and expected the smoke to be related to brush fire as anybody normally would. Uh, he and his crew dressed in brush fire gear and they responded with their engine 304, brush truck 304, and truck 304. Uh, all three units arrived at about 1749 hours, which again is almost an hour into the initial incident. So upon arrival, the crew identified a structure protected by a chain link fence on three sides and a block wall and operatable gate on one side. A visible gas vapor mixture was observed issuing from the structure and the adjacent external equipment. The crew was met by a man who identified himself as Bob's house. No, uh, <laughs> as a contractor employed by the company that maintained the ESS. The contractor asked the engine 304 captain to cut the lock on the gate so he can enter and fix the problem. The contractor stated that the building was used to store lithium-ion batteries, and that the data from the system indicated the component that in the system had been overheating. Engine 304 captain directed the contractor away from the gate and proceeded to cut the lock to gain entry to the fenced area to conduct a 360 size-up. At the same time, the other members of the crew pulled hose lines and pulled engines off the engine and up to the south-facing door of the ESS. When the fire department personnel conducted the size-up, the contractor hit the emergency shutter switch to the southeast side of the ESS and put the key in the locked door. The function of the emergency shutter switch is unknown. And that is a, you know, that's a, a point, the function of the emergency shutter. That's something that we hit all the time in class. We actually have a, a picture of one of those emergency shutoff switches after we end up talking about the battery management system. And we're like, be careful hitting this because we don't necessarily know what we're turning off. Yes. It, it's definitely I actually had one um, in Queens where it was very early with the installations and we're like, what does this do? And they're like, well, it shuts everything off. It's a safety. And we're like, but what does it do? And they're like, well, to hit it, if you're curious, hit it. Because it wasn't like on yet. And we hit it and it turned off the air conditioning, which stopped the, would stop the thermal runaway. Right. Like well, it would we had that incident in, was it Queens or Brooklyn? We were on the rooftop. You were resource. I was entry. <laughs> where. Yeah where we had to take the subject matter excerpt, quickly train them in SCBA so they yeah. could come in with us. Yeah, that was the same that. thing. The first two units hit the button. They killed the source of cooling of the batteries. Yep. 
All right. We digress. All right. Uh, as <laughs> as engine 304 captain was finishing the size up, an employee from the company that owned the ESS arrived on scene. So this is interesting to note because you have you have multiple companies here. You have a company that owns it, which is owned by the electrical grid. You have a company that maintains it. And then you have the company that installed it. So we have three separate subject matter experts running around on scene when all this is finally happening. The contractor from the company that maintains the ESS and the employee from the company that owns the ESS uh, communicated with the boss that the energy storage system was a sealed system. Sealed system. So a sealed system means that there is no ventilation happening. Whatever right. happens inside is supposed to stay inside. There's no ventilation system. There's no switching over of the air every minute or so. It is a sealed system. What happens in there stays in there. As a result, the representatives recommended that the door not be opened at the time uh, and that fire department personnel should, quote, let it sit for a bit, but deferred to the three or four captain's expertise in managing the incident. At this point, the captain realized, hey, this isn't a normal run. Let's bump this up to hazmat. Uh, and uh, they created a 300-foot temporary radius around the, quote, unquote, hot zone uh, just as a safety isolation zone. Uh, and they kind of moved equipment around scene. So that's, I think that 300 foot radius zone is where they're getting there. That's the hot zone. That's the hot I, zone. That's, I yes. think that's what their definition of hot zone is because they established 300 feet. That's the hot zone. So anybody that went in there was making an entry. Yes. Well, the the first hazmat entry, yes. After the first hazmat entry, they redefined the hot zone as a hazmat hot zone by the hazmat technicians, ah. and and that was done as the the uh, the gates surrounding the barbed wire gates surrounding the structure. Okay, so engine three hundred four, captain radio dispatch at approximately six oh three hours, requesting a battalion chief and hazmat unit to be dispatched. And this resulted in Battalion Chief 301 being dispatched with Battalion Chief and a safety officer. And the Surprise Medical uh, Department Hazmat Unit was already dispatched to a separate call, which resulted in the Peoria Fire Medical Department Hazmat Team, which is Engine 193 and Hazmat 193, automatically meeting dispatches the nearest available hazmat unit. And so the chief arrived on scene at about 18, 18 hours, which point 301, the battalion chief took command of the fire ground. And they asked the contractor to sit in their, their fire buggy uh, until hazmat or unit arrived so that they could all relate to the information that he had to the hazmat team prior to formulating a plan, which I like. Yeah. And that's, that's, like that's that. a, that's a really good, that's a really good move. Now I just wanted to, to know, cause we probably won't go through it uh, until later, but the, the members of this team and this captain, uh, they had had battery, um, training, but they never oh. specifically had ESS training. So they understood that there were a lot of hazards involved, which is why they, they ended up kind of acting the way that they did now. So that was a great, great heads up move to expand everything out, call hazmat and kind of let everything, uh, you know, fall where it may. Uh, when engine 193 was dispatched to the call, engine 193 captain immediately started his team conducting research on the potential hazards associated with buyer, um, battery fires while they were en route. Now, uh, 
when they arrived on scene, they met with the captain, the battalion chief, contractor, one employee from the company that owns the ESS. On upon arrival of the hazmat team, they noticed a diffuse cloud of white-gray vapor mixtures ranging from the ground to an elevation of about three feet above the ground. And we actually have pictures of this. Can if uh, I don't know if we're – I can't see the live, but I want to see yes. if the pictures are there. Yes. Okay. Pictures are there. Okay, so uh, this visible mixture appeared to be denser than the air, so obviously it would sink, and it was coming from the ESS storage system and the distribution box uh, in the area. Also, they noted that the smell uh, in the area was nasty and acrid, which kind of goes exactly along with lithium-ion batteries going into thermal runaway. Yeah, so you can kind of see the pictures. There is a a good low-lying, I'm going to say like a fog, it almost, you know, it's almost like a fog machine. Like there was a raid there the night before. Yeah. Like if this were it's morning just, time, I would expect this to be all around. It literally looks like morning fog. Yeah. Morning dew, morning fog. So uh, the engine 193 captain met with the engine 304 captain. Now, I'm just to point that out. That's two different departments talking. So there was, yep. I'm assuming there was communication not issues. I, I doubt there was issues, but, you know, just to keep everybody in the same, this is not like, you know, all these companies are part of the same department. This is a big mutual aid kind of thing. So one captain met with another captain, met with the chief, with the contractor, and the personnel from the company that owned the ESS to establish a history of the incident and the appropriate next steps. The Hazard team donned full turnout gear and SCBAs and started measuring gas concentrations in the vicinity of the fenced area. Hazardous HCN and CO gas, gas concentration were detected at the gate to the fenced area above 50 parts per million and 500 parts per million, respectively. The team walked through the desert outside the fenced area to define the extent of the hot zone and found hazardous conditions at all locations where it was visible. Okay, I, I would expect that. That's- and if and if we look at the at the cloud, that's pretty impressive because that's for an outdoor area to yeah. have you know hazardous levels in that kind of distance that's that's pretty significant even in the in the in the um in a desert like where vapor pressures are high because of just the heat and the low humidity i would expect it to go pretty quick Uh, i would expect the same uh the hazmat team inspected the outer surface of the structure using a thermal imaging camera to see if there was an active fire present in the ESS, a relatively small hotspot, about six inches by 24 inches with a maximum temperature of 130 degrees Fahrenheit was identified in the northwest side of the ESS at the approximate location of rack 15, the inverter. Um, the hazard team reported back gas levels and tick temperatures to the battalion chief who had set the command vehicle north of the gate. A diagram of the approximate locations of the vehicles is provided here. And so you can see they had... A bunch of rigs there. Wow. So what what if you had a tick and you were shining it on a Connex box and you were getting readings of 130 at like a maximum, would you in any way, shape or form think that there was an active fire going on? No, there'd be something warm. But even first off, the thermal imaging camera, those temperature pieces in there, they suck. They do. If they're using a firematic one. It's not accurate at all. So. Let's just say maybe it was higher. Right, if it was higher. But you also have a desert, right? And we're, we're what, we're 8 o'clock at night. So 
the surface of these things could probably be pretty warm to begin with. That would be my, you know, like, I don't know. I wish they had said what the other temperatures around it were of other Connex boxes to give a comparison. Right. Uh, But if you're getting a hotspot, you're still getting a hotspot no matter what the temperature is. But basically if we're looking at this, we're turning around saying, okay, there's, there's no, there's no active fire happening, which, which might tend to, uh, I'm not going to say relax everybody, but take everybody down a notch. Well, I would say one thing that you don't know if it's 100. Let's say let's just say it's 130. Is it 130 on the way down? Is it 130 on the way up? Is that's it at a crescendo of 130? Like that's some. And the other thing is, is like I'm only reading the surface temperature, but air is an incredible insulator. It is. And so if that thing, let's say, is six inches off of that actual metal and convection is giving me that 130, my actual piece could be in the hundreds and hundreds of range because as that air flows up the wall, it's bringing the cool stuff from below, interacting with that convection cycle and only transferring 130 to the metal. But if you had air temperature, all right, so this is my thought, right? Like I'm, I'm looking, I would be looking at a thermal imaging camera on the surface and I see a hot spot. Mm-hmm. Would you attribute that to air or would you attribute that to some kind of direct contact? Whether it could it, be direct or it could be radiant or it could be or convection. Because like, I, would, I would assume air currents and convection to give you a larger, less defined geometric. Like – like and I might be overthinking this, but the rate. Let's say, let's say, from the for the sake of argument, let's say on the inside, one hundred percent of the heat that's being. Uh, no, I don't want to say that right. There's a lot of radiant heating against that metal, and let's say it wants to bring it to two hundred degrees. However, with that heat causes currents, right? So it's bringing the right. cool air from the bottom or the cooler air from the bottom, and it's washing up that wall, bringing from two hundred to back down to one thirty. Yeah. All right. I could see you know that. What I'm saying? So like that, that device might be ripping at a thousand degrees, but you're seeing 130 outside. And I'm not saying this is what's happening, but in my mind's eye, I'm saying, you know what? That is a, that is a good hypothesis. And <laughs> if I may say so, I would, I would try to take uh, an aerial view of the roof as well, because ah. if, if all I'm doing is look, and we're not Monday morning quarterbacking, but you know, we're, 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 just piecing together, you know, things that 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 we may have done differently with the hindsight. Um, get on one of the tower ladders and look down onto the roof because if I've got a hot spot here and no hot spot on the roof, well, that tells me a lot too. You know, if the, if the roof is cool, you know, I may have something that is actually hot up against that that container versus a fire inside. I like it. Okay, so the. Uh, should we stop it here? You know what? Yeah, let's let's break it here because we're going to start getting into other things about uh, the the meat of this thing now, and so um, we don't want to do it any injustice. This is we're already up to oof, almost thirty something minutes, so we will break it here and come on back with part two. See ya. Well, that wraps up another episode of The Hazmat, guys. You can find us at Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. And don't be afraid to use that like or follow button. Or you can sign up for even more content from us at thehazmatguys.com. 
here, you can subscribe so that we can connect you to even more great stuff. Your support is going to help us improve and build this awesome community even more. Yeah, and if you want to get to the next level, you won't want to miss our premium content. Our specialist level provides you with access to our entire catalog of shows, which is now over 300, an exclusive Facebook group, premium video with no ads, and so much more. Also, check the Hazmat Guys University link on our website. And don't forget, we are always interested in hearing about incidences or calls that you have experienced. We may bring you on the show to share that story reach us at feedback at the hazmatguys.com. And remember, folks, don't just get on the job, get into the job.